Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. didn't I didn't suspect anything really sinister. I had been having migraines for about 10 months and I'd never really had them before and I just I went to a neurologist and he said, "I think you just have classic familial migraines." I, I saw him in November of 2017 and then came February of this year. It was a Sabbath actually that I was not feeling well. I thought I've just got a bad migraine. And then Sunday morning, I woke up and did not feel good. My son and I were golfing. Shaney said, man, I'm having another migraine. You know, I'm just going to take the medicine and lay down and give it some time and ride it out. By the time I got back to the house, it was probably six or eight hours later. The house was like I left it. You know, you walk in and you say, hey, babe, I'm home. And, you know, there's no answer. And so I proceeded upstairs and kind of got to the bed. I was like, babe, are you okay? And there was, there was hardly a response. He started asking me questions, and I couldn't answer them. And he took my temperature, and it was just under 105. And I'd been throwing up, and he was saying, what's going on? And I, I just I couldn't speak. So he called a physician friend of ours and asked him, you know, what should I do? Does this sound like anything bad and he said I need you to give her two Tylenol and you need to get her to the ER right now. In the process of trying to figure out what was going on he said well we your wife is in acute liver failure. And then Byron had told a nurse about this shorter history of migraines so someone thought take a CAT scan of her head and that's when they found the tumor. It was about the size of a larger avocado pit. It was left frontal lobe. It was in a pretty critical place because it had already pushed my brain. It was pushing it off midline, very close to a really critical blood supply that if you nick that, you're probably dead. There was a three to four day period there where the doctors knew that there was a mass that needed to be dealt with. The other doctors caring for her liver also knew that the acute liver failure and getting hopefully better from that was really key to being able to do the surgery. So the doctors had told us the risks that were involved with surgery, I mean the normal risks with any surgery, and then they went into more detail in telling me about because of of the part of the brain that the tumor was in, uh, these are the areas that, that could be affected and jeopardized and you could wake up with deficits in these areas 
and they were talking about emotions and personality and safety judgment and even physical issues that I may come out with. Like I might need to get intense rehabilitation, uh, whether it be physical or cognitive or what that is. I just might may, may wake up being different. You know, there's one side of you that's thinking, what's the solution? You know, what is the solution to this spot that we're in? And the other side is sort of unbelief, like, wait, what is happening? As a husband not knowing, you know, if you're going to have the wife that you know come out of surgery, you feel like life is always <clears throat> seemingly pretty under control. Um, but this was not one of those times. All those things kind of swirl around in your head and you think about that, but I still, I still was able to have complete peace about it. And not necessarily peace thinking, oh, God's going to totally, I'm going to come out of this perfectly. God's going to totally heal me. It wasn't that kind of a peace. It was just, it was a confidence that however things ended up, it was going to be okay. And then I even remember telling Byron that I said, you know what, I've had, I've had the, the most incredible life, my 44 years. Like I said, I don't, I just, I don't want to die. Like I'm not sitting here saying it's okay, I can die. But yet when I look back on my life, I have traveled the world and I've had experiences that some people would never have in their entire life. And my life is full. So I said, if, it, if this is it, for me, that's okay. I'm okay with it. So on the actual surgery day, um, the university and hospital were kind enough to arrange a private uh, conference room that they gave us as family and, and close friends to be at during the surgery. You know, how, how do you feel in that moment where you just have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring? You have no idea what the tumor is or what the mass is. I mean, there's just so many things you don't know. Um, the things you do know is that you have some of your best friends and family in the room. You have a God that you believe in that is that is always in control and you know already knows what the outcome is going to be. Um, and there was a combination of of tears, praising God, prayer, music, conversations, laughter which at first maybe felt awkward, but I think we all realized that this was a marathon kind of day. You know, you can't stay in the sta same state for 10 or 12 hours. And so we all talked about how it was okay to laugh and talk about stories about Shaney and life and listen to some of our favorite music, a lot of which was music that Shaney was involved with. When we were told that the surgery was done, the surgeon met us in the lobby. It was an unbelievable combination of joy and relief. You don't realize till that moment actually how much stress you have inside. You know, our son was not there that day because we felt it was best for him to be with friends and family, kind of outside the hospital. But that moment was also about, you know, being able to tell him, right, that. Uh, you know, mommy will still be around. 
it's overwhelming now when I think about it. But that's truly, it's truly how I felt. I felt like God had blessed me so much and he'd given me such a full life that if it was over tomorrow, it wouldn't matter. And that's where the word hope comes in for me because it wasn't necessarily about the hope of, oh, I'm going to be healed and I'm going to be well here on this earth. But even far beyond that, just the hope of heaven and knowing that every single thing will be restored perfectly when I'm in heaven, even if it's not on earth. And so I had so much comfort and peace with that. It was a beautiful thing. And I still, I still believe that to this minute, I believe that. And I'm confident and, and trusting God, continuing up even to my next surgery and my radiation. I just, I fully believe that God has the best intentions for me in my future, whatever that is, because he knows best. Shaney said, I've had an incredible life. It's not like I want to die. But if that's what happens, I'm at peace. That catches me. It causes me to ask the obvious question. What would allow any one of us to face a potentially compromised future and have peace? What would allow any one of us in the midst of very difficult circumstances to remain faithful? In fact, Shaney's story pushes us to consider a reality most of us would rather ignore. And that's the reality that for every single one of us, life on this earth hangs by a slender and sometimes fraying thread. In a congregation this size, it is possible that someone who is here this morning will not be with us next Sabbath. It's truly a reality we would rather ignore. But it does press home the question of faithfulness. What would allow Shaney, what would allow any of us to face a compromised future, be faithful to God, and be at peace? There's an example of just such faithfulness in the New Testament book. The letter of Paul, the second letter of Paul, to whom he calls his true son in the faith, Timothy. 
2 Timothy chapter 4. He's writing to Timothy this time, is the apostle, because he recognizes that his future is compromised. There's not much up ahead. It's time to hand the baton to someone behind him. Timothy will be that someone. And so Paul takes a pen in hand or has a scribe take a pen in hand and writes this letter to Timothy saying, in essence, Timothy, I'm about to hand you the ministry, the ministry in which I have been so deeply and integrally involved. I'm about to hand it to you. There's a place where he offers a final charge to Timothy. And then it's at the end of that charge that Paul writes what, in essence, is a three-verse autobiography of faithfulness. Just three verses long. He talks to Timothy about why it is that he can face certain death and do so faithful and at peace. We're going to read those three verses this morning. We're going to read them just one at a time and then linger over the thoughts contained in each, trying to understand the answer to that question. How can we be faithful to the end? How can we be at peace? So Paul begins in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. Just having said to Timothy, Timothy, as for you, I'm about to hand this off to you. Now, as for me, this is what's up ahead. And this is what he writes, verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. This is very different than Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. In his first imprisonment in Rome, he was writing about plans, about ministry that he would carry out after he was released, about what God had for him up ahead. That was the first time. But this time, there is no such talk. He draws rather on Old Testament sacrificial system imagery. The imagery of the, peace pour, the priest pouring out the liquid offering at the altar. And he says, Timothy, I am already being poured out on the altar. J.B. Phillips' New Testament in modern English renders that. The last drops of my life are being drained. And then he goes from there to another phrase. The time of my departure is at hand. That word departure in the Greek, this is the only place in the New Testament that it appears. It's a word that literally means loosing or being loosed. It's like loosing a ship that is at the dock, undoing the mooring ropes and allowing it to leave harbor. In secular Greek literature of the time, it's a euphemism for death. So Paul is absolutely clear that the sands in the hourglass of his life are running low. Not much time is left. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to those moments when we realize, I may not have as much time as I thought I had? Well, one man, John Brandick, 62-year-old man from the UK, British man, 
received just such news. His physician told Brandick, the news is not good. You've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. You have less than a year to live. Well, Brandick was struck deeply by that, as would any of us be. But he decided, here's how I'm going to handle it. I'm going to do the things I never did before. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. He stopped paying his mortgage. He withdrew all of his savings. He began to spend it lavishly on everyone he could find, friends for sumptuous feasts, vacation here, a trip there. He was spending to his heart's content. I don't have much time left. Follow-up appointment with his physician. His physician said, we misdiagnosed you. It's not pancreatic cancer, it's pancreatitis. You have a long future ahead of you. He said, what are you talking about? At last count, he was arming up to sue the hospital. He said, you can't misdiagnose me and then tell me you're going to live. I have nothing left to live on. And his words, you're going to pay because I'm going to live. Well, that's one way to respond but not the way most of us might respond, and certainly not the way Paul responded. Paul is crystal clear on the future. He has just said it, poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. Here is his response to that, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Three brief statements. I have fought. I have finished. I have kept. Paul is at peace. He recognizes that the life that he has lived will come faithfully to its conclusion. So consider what he says. I have fought the good fight. He draws on the athletic imagery in, on which Paul often drew to talk about the spiritual life, but to do so in athletic terms. It's as though he's stepping out of the boxing ring, stepping away from the wrestling mat, and saying, I have fought the good fight. It's the imagery he chooses. It's almost like a modern-day athlete saying, I left it all on the court. I left it all out there on the field. There is nothing more that I could have given. I have invested every inch, inch of myself and every ounce of my energy, and I have now fought the good fight. Now, you might wonder, Paul, why did you choose that particular imagery? You have fought the good fight. Isn't there maybe a more gracious or kind way to speak about your work for Jesus? After all, Paul was sold out for Jesus, deeply invested in the righteousness of Jesus that we receive by faith, deeply invested in speaking about the faithfulness of God that put him on a collision course with the religious elites of his day. He did end up fighting the good fight with them. I want to give you just one example of that. It's found in 2 
Corinthians chapter 11 to get a feel for what Paul is talking about when he says, I have fought the good fight. Listen to these words, beginning partway through verse 23. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have constantly been on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers." I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Was it a fight? It had been for Paul. Battered and beaten and bruised. He now is coming to the end of that time, and he is able to say with confidence and with faithfulness, I have fought the good fight. It's marked all over my body and even in my soul. Every year, once a year, here in this sanctuary, there is a memorial service. It's unlike any other memorial service you would have attended. It's a memorial service that the students on our campus hold for the donors. Understand when the students arrive and begin to study medical, dental, physical therapy, the different disciplines that are studied here, when they arrive, they are given the honor, the sacred privilege of learning about the human body by working on human bodies. These are individuals who chose before their death to say, I would like to donate my body so that someone else can learn about the human body and therefore can go and help heal others. So once a year, our students hold a memorial service for the donors. Letters are sent out to the families of the donors. When they arrive here at the sanctuary across the front, there are pictures of the donors. They have an opportunity to see who it was, who the family members were. They have an opportunity, the students do, to understand something about these individuals who donated their bodies. Every year there are readings that are shared I remember one in particular. I wish I had it in front of me. I don't know who wrote it, though. But I can tell you the gist of what it was. A donor who had written a letter to the students who would learn from her. She told them about what those scars and injuries and wounds were. You'll find that my left arm is broken. Healed was painful. Came from running with my kids trying to fly a kite. 
you'll notice that my fingers, my hands, are a bit gnarled and bent. Those are the marks of years, of decades, of serving my family. You'll see that these old knees were giving out with time. Oh, they caused me a lot of pain. And one line after another, moving through her body, saying, here is the evidence of fighting the good fight. These are my battle scars. That was Paul. When he realizes there's not much time left, he says, Timothy, I want you to know that I come to the end of my days able to say, I have fought the good fight. And I'm ready to rest. He adds a second line. I have finished the race. I find that surprising, honestly. I find it surprising that, that Paul would write, I have finished the race. I find it surprising because that's not the kind of thing that most of us would have written, not in our world. You see, in our world, what we would have wanted to have been able to write would have been, Timothy, I have won the race. Isn't that what it's all about, winning? What are you going to enter the race for if it's not to win? Red Saunders, the college football coach years ago, said, winning isn't the best thing, it's the only thing. That's what we're all about, correct? And yet to Paul, this isn't about winning or losing. It's about finishing faithfully the race. For one example of that, consider what he said to the elders from the church at ancient Ephesus. There comes a moment in his life when he realizes, I have to return to Jerusalem. But as he makes his way to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit is making clear there is severe danger and much trouble up ahead. But he has his face set to Jerusalem just as Jesus did because he knows that's where God is leading him. There comes a moment in Acts 20 when he has gathered the elders of Ephesus around him at a place called Miletus. If you can picture it in your mind's eye, you can see this cluster of individuals gathered on a beach with a man who is about to board a ship and continue his journey. And they are weeping. They are begging him not to go. They pray together. It is in that context that Paul says this, Acts 20, verse 22. Speaking to them, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Listen to this. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me 
the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. My only aim, he says, is to finish the race, to be faithful to the very end. John Stephen Aquari, a Tanzanian marathon runner, was a runner for Tanzania in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. October 20, 1968, the marathon event has unfolded. It has ended. It's been over an hour since the winning runner crossed the finish line. The other runners followed behind. Finally, the runners are done, aren't they? The spectators in the stands are beginning to filter away. The sky is growing dark. The day is growing long. When suddenly there is the sound of police whistles and sirens. Those left turn their view toward the gateway into the stadium through which the runners had all come. As they turn, because that's where the sound is coming from, they see before them a runner. Except he's not running. His leg is bandaged. He's bloodied from an earlier, very difficult, very painful fall in the race. And now John Stephen Aquari comes limping into the stadium. The spectators pause. They watch the spectacle unfold. Aquari limping toward the finish line. And then they begin to cheer. They begin to clap. They begin to whistle, encouraging him forward. He finally limps across the finish line. The last finisher, far behind the others. Somebody, a journalist, I suppose, dared to ask him the obvious question. You're injured, you're wounded, you fell. Why didn't you stop when you fell? To which John Stephen answered and said, My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. That's Paul. Paul who says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From the moment the light of Jesus shined into his life on the Damascus road till the chill wind of eternity blew into his face in a Roman prison, he was able to say, I have kept the faith. It was the passion of his life, the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of Jesus. In fact, the text for which he may be best known is that statement of the gospel in Romans 1 where he says, in spite of all the opposition against him, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. I have kept the faith. The phrase in the Greek language is a, a phrase that speaks of somebody who has been loyal to their duty, loyal to their oath of office. They have remained faithful. 
In this brief autobiography of faithfulness, Paul caps it off by saying, I kept the faith. I have remained faithful. This past week, dear friend named Larry Thomas shared with me that the writer, the English social critic and author Oz Guinness is the cousin of Richard Bues, former rector of All Souls Church in London. Richard Bues has spoken here on our, at our church on a number of occasions. It was the story of his cousin, Oz Guinness, that caught me. He wrote it just a couple of years ago. Listen to what Guinness wrote. I grew up, he writes, in a China that had been ravaged by two centuries of European and American adventuring, and then by World War II, and then by a brutal civil war. We lived in Nanjing, which was then the nation's capital, but there were few good schools to go to. So at the age, listen to this, at the age of five, five, at the age of five, I found myself setting off by plane to a boarding school in Shanghai. Obviously, the conditions behind the decision to send me out at that age were extreme. And I was not the only one who was launched on that path being so young. But it was the first time in my life that I had been away from my parents and on my own. So to give me a constant reminder of the North Star of the faith at the center of our family life, my father had searched for two small, smooth stones, flat stones, and had painted on them his life motto as well as that of my mother. For many years, those two little stones were tangible memos in the pockets of my gray flannel shorts that were the uniform of most English schoolboys in those days. In my right-hand pocket was my father's motto, found faithful. And in my left-hand pocket was my mother's, please him. Many years have passed since then, and both of those little painted stones were lost in the chaos of escaping from China when Mao Zedong and the People's Army eventually overran Nanjing, returned the capital to Beijing, and began their iron and bloody rule of the entire country. But I have never forgotten the lesson of those little stones. Followers of Jesus are to be found faithful and to please him always, everywhere, and in spite of everyone and everything. Was that a five-year-old boy? Or was that an aged, stooped apostle, branded and bloodied and bruised, by the years of faithfulness to Jesus, whichever it is, it's the call of God on your life and mine. Paul gives us as succinct a summary of a faithful life as could be found. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So then what is the outcome 
of a faithful life. Paul has one more verse, verse 8, in which he says this. Now, because of that, now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. There have been those who have struggled to understand what Paul says. An award? A reward? I thought salvation was only through the merits of Jesus, only by his grace, only received through faith. What is this of giving a reward? The eminent British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says you have to understand there can be at least two different kinds of rewards. The first kind of reward, says Wright, is the one that maybe you see on the wall at the post office. Somebody who has committed a criminal act that's heinous and dangerous, and you see the picture, and you see underneath, there's a reward. Wright says, I saw one of those in my neighborhood one day. Reward, $50,000 if you provide information that leads to the apprehension and the capture of this person. That act and that reward really don't have anything to do with each other. You perform this act and you get paid for it. That's one kind of reward. That's not what Paul addresses here. There's a second kind of reward. This is the reward of the young woman who is seeking to learn Italian. She commits herself to months of study, long nights, slaving over the books, trying to pronounce the words, learning the vocabulary. She works hard to learn Italian because at the end of that year's study, she's going to spend the summer in Italy. By the time she comes to the end of that year, she has devoted herself so fully to learning that that when she arrives in the country of Italy, Romine, Firenze, and Venezia, she is now able to speak the language, to communicate, to enjoy what's around her, to make friendships, and to connect. That is her reward. She fits in. She belongs. She enjoys so much more deeply the experience. That's what Paul says. I've spent my life on this sinful earth preaching and living the righteousness of Jesus, writing about the love of which there is no compare, speaking about one day seeing his face, wanting to live my life in a righteous way, but constantly facing the battles from outside and the battles from inside. But because Jesus took hold of me and he has given me this mission and this ministry, I have applied myself to it and I have begun to learn the language of heaven. Righteousness and love and joy and peace. 
So that when the day comes that I see him face to face, when I step onto that eternal shore, there will already be within me a recognition of that for which heaven stands. Paul will be fluent in the language of eternity. He says, that is my reward. I will be given the crown that consists of righteousness for which my whole life has been given. And I will finally see him face to face. And there will be something deep in me that responds to the depths of Jesus. That's Paul's autobiography of faithfulness. But he doesn't want it just to be his autobiography. Because his last line in these three verses, is that all of this, the life of faithfulness, the being able to face the future, even a compromised one, with peace, learning the language of heaven, this is all not just mine, but it is for every single one who has longed for his appearing. That word longed in the Greek, is a form of a Greek word you know. The Greek word of which it is a form is the, it's pronounced this way. It's the word agape. Paul is saying, if you want to live a faithful life, if you want to be able to look at your future with peace, if you want to step on a new shore and find it home, then fall in love with Jesus. Sell out to Jesus. Be so sold out to Him and to His love and to His grip on your life that you will find yourself loving those thoughts, longing for those moments when you think, I will see Him face to face. Because it's that kind of person who will fight the good fight, who will finish the race, who will keep the faith. Those who love him and who long to see him. So Shani said, she said, I don't want to die. I get that. I don't want to, but I believe that God has the best in store for me. There's a word for that. The word is faithful. We would love to have had Shaney sing for you today. Shaney is here today. She's here today with her husband, her son, her mom, friends who love and surround her. She would love to have sung, but she's just not quite yet ready. But you know what? Shaney is going to sing for us today. She is going to sing, and she's going to sing about the God who is able, able to hold us in the grip of His grace, 
and to give us the courage and strength to be faithful to him.
Gracious God, you are able. You're able to take weak, sinful, too often faithless human beings, to draw us together in a community called church, to fill us with your Spirit, to transform us from what we were into who you would have us to be. To take a murdering persecutor and make him a firebrand apostle for the righteousness of God. Lord, you can do the same with us. The plea of our hearts, the prayer of our souls today is that you would give us grace and strength and courage to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith till the day we see you face to face. Lord, make us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.